Hello and welcome to Filibustering Museology, a podcast series where we discuss what museum specialists do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, lead faculty for the history programs at Southern New Hampshire University's College of Online and Continuing Education. Today, like most days, I am joined by James Fennessy, the Associate Dean of Faculty for History at SNHU, who is calling in from San Francisco, and by Susie Chung, a team lead and adjunct faculty in public history for SNHU, who is calling in from Chicago. We are talking to Anna Leschenko, a museologist and board member for the International Committee for Museology, who is calling in from Moscow, the one in Russia, not the one in Idaho. Today we will discuss Anna's background, her experiences working with ICAFOM, and her goal of better incorporating data analytics into the study of museums. What is your name and what do you do? My name is Anna Leshenko and I am a senior lecturer at Museology Department in Russian State University for the Humanities in Moscow. Oh, and generally I am a museologist. Well, Anna, it's great to meet you. Thank you for joining us. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about your background, so your educational background and how you came to be in the position that you're currently holding? Sure. Uh, well, I have to start from my teen years. Uh, when I was 14, I entered a prep school that was a sophisticated version of the last four years of ordinary school, and half of the lessons were delivered by my potential university lecturers, and it was like a liaison that got me prepared to enter one of our major universities. And this way, I became part of my alma mater since school time. Well, then I entered the Department of Museology without thinking a lot about my future career, and I was mainly interested in gaining new knowledge. At the time, I was mainly interested in foreign languages. I focused on English, Spanish, French, and other languages, and they were trying to prepare me for tour guiding job. And so I was very focused on that around that time. But even when I became a tour guide and I also worked as an interpreter with English and Spanish languages, I was more into research and my current boss, uh, she invited me to join the faculty and uh, start lecturing. The lecturer who was delivering lectures in general museology, she was leaving step by step and she was ready to give away most of her lectures. And well, this way I realized that that was what I wanted around that time. So since 2009, I started lecturing in general museology and almost each year I got a new topic to develop for lectures. And now I'm, I really can say that I'm a real museologist because I know basically everything about museums around the world. <laughs> is, that, is that fine? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Okay. Your fluency in English and Spanish, can you tell students who are interested in learning a foreign language how you would go about becoming as fluent as you? It's all about immersion. For example, look, I've never uh, visited any English-speaking country, I mean, where native speakers live. So I haven't been to USA or Great Britain, and I learned English uh, watching a lot of uh, videos and listening to BBC and all different stuff over the Internet. What are your overall interests in teaching and research? Uh, what types of courses do you teach? What kind of courses would you like to teach? What do you like to do the research on, that kind of thing? The list of my research interests is huge, I would say. Well, the trick with 
museology is that it is very interdisciplinary and museology itself doesn't have its own methodology doesn't have like specific subject matter to research and it's not always like museology is research in museums or museum activities or connection between museums and visitors it uh, basically researches everything i'm interested in uh, different lines of research at the moment for example Last year, I started uh, a new research that I'm uh, conducting together with our vice president, ICAFON vice president, Bruno Brolon Suarez. And uh, we are calling for decolonization of museum theory. We try to show that there is a big problem in uh, humanities in general, because a lot of people, a lot of museologists and museum professionals around the world, they have this perception that the best museum minds are in um, anglophone and francophone countries and they do not pay a lot of attention to what is happening in their own countries and so this kind of research is to show that we need to pay more attention to other places also i'm very interested in uh, museum communication this term actually came from usa and the first articles that we know here, they all were published in a Curator Journal. And uh, so right now my focus is on uh, trying to find what else was written on this topic in different parts of the world. And also I want to try to be this ambassador in museology. I want to show to foreign colleagues what exactly we know about this in Russia. And it was, for example, it was published in Russian and there were very interesting ideas and I want to share them with my colleagues around the world. So I'm trying to be this translator between cultures. You know, I want to show that we also have, like, if people don't know Russian, they should still pay attention to different topics. Also, at this very moment, I'm looking for a new research area. Susie already knows that I'm into data science and uh, I'm learning data analytics. And now I'm discussing with different people, different opportunities of doing research in museum that will be data driven. But also I want to connect what I call classical museology and I wouldn't call it new museology, but there are like new trends. And uh, if we talk about classical museology, for example, it is all about focusing on objects and science in museums, while there are new trends in museology that were born almost 40 years ago. They have different names like alternative museology, new museology, social museology, uh, territorial museology. They are more focused on local communities, on people, on visitors, and then trying to find this connection between uh, uh, data that we connect and data is more about classical museology because we talk more about science and spatial stuff and what I'm trying to do is to pay attention uh, to for, of classical museology is about importance of visitor experience and I'm, tr I'm trying to find these not points of reference I don't know how to call them exactly like points where classical museology and new museologies connect and where they can cross and merge I'm not sure I'm explaining it clearly. <laughs> but, no, I, th I think you are. Is this, just as one example of that, are you thinking of like geographic information systems where in a museum, maybe in an exhibit, it'd be more kind of an interactive thing where maybe 
for the example I'm thinking of, maybe like there's a map and you can click on different parts of the map and it would present information that is relevant to that specific location. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Or is it more of a for the management of the museum type thing to, to regulate, you know, traveler flow through the museum, that kind of thing? Well, what you're talking about is actually classical museology because, uh, well, this approach is showing that visitors are seen as uh, crowds to be directed, but new approaches more visitor-centered. They are about visitor experience coming from the visitor, from the point of view of the visitor. And this is what I'm trying to introduce into museum theory, because new researchers that I'm um, looking at, they're more about space and how we should work with objects and how to make them more accessible, but they do not really try to get into people's minds, maybe, I don't know how to call it, but at the same time, <laughs> I'm going to do two things that might sound very ambitious because, well, I come from humanities, but I'm going into data science. And at the same time, I'm studying neuropsychology and neurolinguistics. It's all about how our brains work when we read texts, labels, or why we read something or why we cannot read it. And I'm really trying to find connections so that different sciences that meet in museums so that they work together. So it sounds like you're trying to basically reinvent museums so that they're more self-directed, so that maybe the people that are coming to visit, they get to kind of follow their own path rather than the prescribed path that you were talking about before? Exactly, yeah. Okay. And also, I want to inspire museums to think more about this and museum people, so we'll see if it works in the future. <laughs> Could you tell me how you were involved with ICOFOM? Yeah, of course. I joined the big ICOM and ICOFOM in 2009, and I realized that I didn't want just to be a member and wait for some information that they, the committee sent me, and uh, I contacted the secretary and the president of ICAFOM and offered to create social media platforms for this committee. And then I created Facebook group and also LinkedIn group. And uh, in LinkedIn, I manually found all ICAFOM members that we had on list around that time. And so this way I tried to, to create this online community and to discuss different museological topics. I was wondering if you might be able to expand a little bit on, um, you know, exactly how you how you develop this community, especially with such a dispersed and diverse group of people. It's something that um, Rob and I both try to do within our history department, being that, you know, all of our faculty are adjunct and they all work online. And I'm just curious how, how you bring together all of these museologists with varying backgrounds and in various areas around the world. It's just fascinating how we develop community in the online environment. It took about nine years to create this network. So, <laughs> and what happened next was that uh, all these social networks that uh, I created, they started attracting people to join ICAFOM. And uh, our, I heard that there are about 2,000 people now in ICAFOM, and when I joined in 2009, there were maybe 500 people. Of course, there are people who do not, who understand museum differently, and there are like there are people who think that museums are for science and for objects and only mainly for work that is done in museum storages, the work that 
visitors do not see, and there are other people who are sure that museums are for visitors. And uh, it's a big problem because sometimes this, and I see this in Russia, these people do not understand each other because they have like different mindsets. They do not understand each other. They even have different conferences. And so I'm trying to help them find the, the same language. And also in about a month, we are also having a meeting about museum definition. The same that you are going to hold in September, we have it uh, here during our big museum festival. And we are going to gather a lot of people with different backgrounds, a lot of museologists and museum people. And I already see the list of these people and they will never agree with each other about main mission of museum. It's really interesting, and maybe you can speak a little bit more about the difference between some of these more uh, traditional museologists and the way that they see museums as, as these physical spaces that are reserved for very specific purposes, and changes in the field and changes in the way that we view museums, especially with the inclusion of the digital or the virtual world um, and moving into, into an online presence. Many, many years ago, <laughs> Duncan Cameron, who was also ICAFOM member, wrote an article about museum as a temple and museum as a forum. And uh, I think that basically also describes this difference between uh, traditional museology and new types of museology or trends of museology. And my position here is not to take somebody's position. I don't say that one of such models is perfect. As a museologist, I am observing what is happening. I am looking at different trends, and I'm also lecturing about new trends in museology around the world. And the trends that I see is that in the 20th century, there were museum as a temple, museum as a forum, and uh, this century is for museum as an activist. And uh, I'm pretty sure that in two years, the official definition of, of museum uh, proposed by ICOM will be the most revolutionary and it will show that museum now becomes a civil activist and uh, museums are not just secure places. They can raise topics that might be very uncomfortable. You can come with your kids to a museum and the museum will not try to uh, show you a nice story of your country. It will show you something sometimes maybe shocking that you're not ready to hear. So I think this is where the museums are going. And as a museologist, this is what I like, because I'm looking at processes and I can uh, spot the trends. Yeah, I like that too. And I think that's a good development. Uh, we don't necessarily need to have institutions that talk cheery about our heritage and all of that, but we really want mm -hmm. museums to actually engage with what happened, how it affected different people, different classes, different genders, different ethnicities. We want to know how did people actually get affected by all of this stuff that's happening. And I wanted to go back and talk about, because you were mentioned before that you're trying to incorporate a bunch of other scientific concepts into your conception of the future of the museum. You were talking about neuroscience and stuff like that. I was wondering if you could go into a little bit more detail about that. What what types of new ideas, beyond the ones you've already talked about, you've, you've touched on it a little bit, but maybe if you want to go a little bit deeper, what other outside ideas, because we, we historians and museologists, we tend to think, in old ways, we don't necessarily look at 
scientific advancements in other fields. But what have you found valuable from things like neuroscience and other branches of uh, academic thinking? Uh, first of all, I found out, I'm not talking about the whole world, but I visit more museums in Russia, of course. And when I go there, I, for example, notice that uh, labels in many museums are using the least readable font. And uh, well, there are a lot of studies that show that fonts like Times New Roman, Courier New, or well, a lot of well-known fonts that we all use are not very good for reading and with growing number of dyslexic people and people who have learning difficulties. Museums are still places that need to reconsider how inclusive they are. So uh, I'm sure that museums at some point will have to invite uh, linguists and well, different consultants from different fields, asking them to interpret a lot of information, become like interpreters, not in terms of narratives, but in terms of how different audiences can perceive information. Because many museums now even understood that all the labels, they shouldn't be written by scientific staff that work at the museum, because when scientists write texts, they, they write texts for other scientists who will actually understand this. But ordinary people, like an average visitor who comes, he will not understand sometimes half of the words. So many museums, they hire interpreters or even uh, writers, even Nobel Prize writers, asking them to make it more accessible in terms of language. I think the next step is to see what fonts are used and generally like involve a lot of theories that are already in educational theory, in linguistics, in uh, psychology, and in many other and I agree with you incorporating um, what you've explained into the evaluation process of creating exhibits, such mm -hmm. as front-end evaluation and formative evaluation and summative evaluation. I think it would be all a part of it including Braille, in, including people who have disabilities as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, also there is a big problem as well. All these kinds of evaluations that you mentioned, they take place at museums and unfortunately all around the world there are a lot of, a lot of museums launch research and they have really interesting results but they do not incorporate it in their work they do not change anything because uh, well the other day i was reading a report of the smithsonian institution about one of the biggest museums they say that well they realize that a lot of people when they enter into a museum from the national mall they have no idea that there is a ground floor and they enter the first floor and uh, those who made this research, they suggested just change the numbers, do not make it like G1 and 2, change it into 1, 2, 3, and so people will see that they enter the second floor and they will know that they can go down, there is another part of exhibition and the cafe and all that stuff, but I entered their website and they see that they haven't changed anything since that year, and so it's sometimes depressing to see that a lot of people try to make a change, but museums do not always react to all these results. So I think my mission as a museologist is to create some basis or a platform and like to make a call to museums that like stop doing this kind of research. That had been a discussion, you know, back in the 20th century where the communication and research were actually 
the most important part of the museum function. But now, you know, we're looking at visitor studies, audience research, and all the ancillary functions of the museum now become the most important part of the functions of the museums. Yeah, so it sounds like we're moving in a direction where, in addition to worrying about the content and the presentation of content, there's also a lot of concern just about general design for museums. We want to make sure that they are accessible to larger audiences. We want to make sure they appeal to more diverse crowds, whether it is class, race, gender, or uh, educational level. We want to make sure that these are inclusive to all people, including with people with disabilities. We want to, we're striving for more of a universal design type environment, which would be more welcoming to more people instead of a sterile environment that only appeals to certain races and classes. We want something that's basically more inclusive of all people. It sound, and it sounds like you're really trying to incorporate a lot of other outside scientific principles to try to make that happen. So could you talk about your experiences in organizing ICOPOM Symposia as a ICOPOM board member? So I know that you were involved with Paris in 2014, and mm -hmm. then the last one that you helped organize was in Cuba in 2017. Sure. I think the first thing to mention here and what students should know when they join different associations and uh, committees like ICAFOM is that it is a lot of volunteer work and it requires a lot of devotion and time and sometimes one month before the symposium you have almost no time to for other stuff you all the time all the time you're answering emails and one week before symposiums in the past four years I was really sleep deprived <laughs> so it's just um, I was sometimes very unhappy about that of course but um, it was very rewarding the whole symposium and when you understand that what you see now and all these people who came and uh, all these new connections and all these great minds that we managed to connect at one place and talk to each other, it is all it is all worth it, yes, so uh, my work was mainly, uh, they call it like communications secretary, and um, I was answering all the emails, I was uh, sending out uh, deadline reminders, uh, I always tried to help people with invitation letters, and whenever they have had any problems, they always wrote to our official email, so I was like this trouble solver. So, in general, it was very, very interesting, but, of course, very time-consuming. But, again, I would, I would like to say that yes, so when you come to this, this symposium and for five days you are with all these great people, you just well, you understand that it was, it was all worth it. So, when you are, you are a member of ICAFOM, you're one of the officers of ICAFOM, so how much time, what is your time commitment for that? Is this a full-time job or is this just a part-time thing? I think if we're looking at it from a career perspective, you know, how do you choose which professional organizations to join? And then once you've joined, how did you network with people in those organizations to become an essential member of the organization? Oh, that's an interesting question. I never thought about it because for me it was like a very logical consequence from everything I've done. So after I created the platforms online, I was like, 
in the spotlight, maybe, <laughs> because I was sharing the news and people, a lot of people around the world could see my name. So probably because of that, for me, it was very easy because when, whenever I came to symposiums, people already knew me. And there was even this joke when uh, I was presented to one of, of the greatest museologists in the world. And I was presented like it's Anna from Facebook. <laughs> so, uh, I was connecting people and I was uh, answering all the letters. So for me, it was like I was always, uh, I automatically became part of this huge network of museum people. That sounds great. And so, Anna, do you have anything that you would like to recommend to us today? Uh, I would like to recommend you to visit one of our museums <laughs> in Moscow. We have a great museum, for, especially for foreigners. Um, it is called Gulag Museum. And uh, as a museologist, I'm very happy to see that such a, such a museum even exists in the country where I live. We all live in, uh, I wouldn't say difficult times, but in uh, changing times. And the Gulag Museum is about... Uh, memory that we need to conserve about what was happening here in Russia during the Soviet times and a lot of injustice that took place there and a lot of names uh, of people who were imprisoned just for thinking freely and then a lot of women for being the, uh, the wives of who never agreed to what the Soviet times brought to our country. So I think this museum as a museum of memory is very important. And when you come to Moscow, do visit it because it's worth it. And also I recommend to visit it with an audio guide for immersion experience because there you will be asked even to enter a prison cell, a real prison cell and to sense how it felt to be imprisoned. Yeah. And uh, when when you are not really, when you are not guilty, because Gulag was mainly about people who were not, many, many of them were not, like millions of them were not guilty and they were imprisoned. So they were guilty of thinking differently. So I think that it is worth it. It's a difficult museum. And I think museums are not created for enjoyment, as the current ICA form definition of museum says. Yeah, I think that's actually an important point. We have a, we have a new museum opening up in um, Montgomery that actually we were just talking about the other day, which, um, which is a remembrance of lynchings that happened in the United States um, mm -hmm. and, and the very difficult history that we've had with uh, race relations, not only in the South, but, but everywhere. And part of it is, you know, it's intended to be both confrontational, but also bring to light a lot of the injustices that have happened in the past. And I think you raise a great point about, you know, museums not only being there to celebrate the fine achievements of uh, of human civilization. Yeah. That there's a lot of there's a lot of other work to be done by museums as well. So um, that I mean I hope that I can make it there one day for sure. Susie, do you have anything to share with us today? I do. Anna's article that was published in 2016. It's entitled "What Does the Future of Museums Look Like?" and it was published by the Auctionoff. Am I pronouncing it correctly, Anna? Yep, Family Foundation. Mm -hmm. And it can be retrieved online. And the topic is exactly what she's been discussing, museum as activists. And basically, she was trying to forecast that trend in 2016. Okay, that sounds great. James, do you have anything for us today? 
Sure. Uh, my recommendation is actually a little bit lighter and tenuous in how it connects to museums. But, but there is a um, what is called a museum of ice cream that has opened in various uh, locations. One here in San Francisco, and the tickets are actually currently sold out through its uh, run in May. There's another one in Miami, which I believe that might be sold out as well. And then the one in Los Angeles, I think it's planning on reopening pretty soon. But basically... It's this celebration of very colorful candy and food, particularly ice cream. And I think it's, you could probably describe it as selfie heaven because it's so colorful and bright. I mean, there's an entire sprinkle pool that you can just go and wade in, like those ball pools at children's places. So it's, it's interesting what they're calling a museum. It's extremely popular. I mean, the tickets have been sold out almost since its opening. You can check it out on Instagram and see all of the colors. Uh, if you're lucky enough to go, you can have tons of their tasty treats. So um, <laughs> I haven't been yet, but uh, but I would like to go just to just to see the experience. I read that too, James. It's called pop-up museums and museological terminology. Yeah, yeah, it's a pop-up, and it was supposed to, it was only supposed to be open for a few months, and it's been so popular and completely sold out that they've extended it. So right now, the the end date is supposed to be May 2018, but we'll see if they continue to extend it again. That sounds awesome. I look forward to the pop-up museum in Columbus, Ohio, which I'm sure is high on their list of locations. Yeah, we'll look forward to my Instagram post if I can score a ticket. <laughs> I'm going to end on a little bit of a downer here, uh, and this, this will be fast, but uh, there was a historian named Alfred W. Crosby uh, who was best known for coining the term Columbian Exchange, uh, who was talking about the initial transfer of people, but also plants and diseases and, crop and um, animals between the old world and the new world during the early colonial days. And he wrote a bunch of other books that were really interesting to me because I was an environmental historian, uh, books on ecological imperialism, which was the the subtitle was The Biological Expanse of Europe, 900 to 1900, which was basically about as Europeans colonized the rest of the world, they took their plants and animals and diseases with them and their food with them. And that, of course, those a lot of those species became invasive in other areas of the world. And so eventually European expansion also pretty soon behind that was also plants expanding and food expanding and all that it was really uh kind of an instrumental study in in environmental history and he wrote other books about uh one was called children of the sun a history of humanity's unappeasable appetite for energy so he was one of the big names in environmental history and he passed away back on march 14th of 2018 and um, i just found out about it um, a few days ago and i'm just bummed about that and so that's all I have. Um, he was a he, he was a one of those historians, one of those old school historians who wrote for popular audiences, but it was also held up as the masterpieces by academic audiences also. And we just don't see very many of those historians anymore, unfortunately. So that's my chatter. What, what was the title of your dissertation? My dissertation was what was the title of my dissertation? Oh, um, <laughs> oh my God! Why am I forgetting this? I spent, I spent like 12 years of my life writing this stupid thing. Oh, I got it. 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 It's called, a, it's called The Creative Society Environmental Policy Making in California, 1966 to 1973. Wow. <laughs> How could you forget that? I know. Isn't it fascinating? I really should remember that at all times. I mean, I, I joke, but... Um, 
you know, I don't think that my master's thesis was the most creative in a, <laughs> in its title either. Thing they sometimes tend to get very clinical <laughs> and don't really yeah. reflect, you know, the exciting content that we try to present. Right. Yeah, my dissertation is very. The title is very much a dissertation title. Yeah. No, that's fascinating. So, did it include some protests with uh, the Mexican migrants and um, any Native American? Very. Issues? Tangentially, I mean, there was, it's all about how environmental degradation in California prompted, as a result of industrialization and all that during World War II, it prompted Californians to create an environmental protection regime, which was stronger than any other environmental protection regime in the country. And so my dissertation was talking about how that developed during the years that Ronald Reagan was governor, because Reagan is always held up as, you know, the small government uh, slash regulations guy, and he was that when he was president. But while he was governor of California, California actually took the lead nationally on environmental regulations. So there was some really, you know, s very strong clean air laws and clean water laws, and preserving San Francisco Bay and preventing the they they stopped the damming of Round Valley, which was an old uh, near. It's not near uh, Yellowstone, but it's one of those older uh, areas that had been previously preserved because of Native American populations and all of that. They were they wanted to build a dam there and flood it like they did with Hetch Hetchy, uh, but they they um, turn that they they stopped that during the Reagan years. So basically, the dissertation is talking about this kind of weird moment when conservative politics coincided with environmentalism. Very soon after Reagan left office, those two movements diverged. But for this kind of eight-year period, there was a blending of the two that was that is kind of unimaginable today. That's interesting. I don't know how we got sidetracked on my dissertation, but you're all welcome for that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, huh. You can look up your dissertation as well. Yeah. <laughs> Feel free. You'll probably be the first person that's ever looked it up. <laughs> Second. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, that um, that was great. So thank you very much for joining us today, Anna. You're welcome. Thank you, Anna. Yeah, thank you. This has been fantastic. And thank you for joining us today. If you have any questions or comments on this podcast or suggestions for future episodes, as always, send me an email at workinghistorians at gmail.com. For James Fennessy, Susie Chung, and Anna Leschenko, I am Rob Denning. Oh, and I still got my own dissertation name wrong. It's The Creative Society, Environmental Policymaking in California, 1967 to 1974. You'd think that a historian like myself would get the dates right, but whatever. I never said I was a good historian. Okay, bye.